Six things are strangers in six situations. Six things are strangers in six situations. And I'll explain here what the word stranger means. Uh, the masjid is a stranger amongst people who do not pray. The Quran, number one, the masjid is a stranger amongst people who do not pray. Number two, the Quran is a stranger in a household where it is not read. Number three, the memorized Qur'an is a stranger in the heart of an open sinner. Number four, a righteous Muslim woman is a stranger in the hands of an oppressive husband of bad character. Number five, a pious Muslim man is a stranger in the hands of an evil wife of bad character. And number six, and a scholar is a stranger amongst a group of people who do not listen to him. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, Verily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not look at them on the Day of Judgment in a merciful manner. So Rasulullah mentioned in this hadith, again this is in the collection uh, compiled by Imam Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah, in which he has gathered different types of counsels from the Prophet ﷺ as well as some narrations from the Sahaba and Tabin and Tabai Tabin. This is from the chapter of the Council in Sixes in which he's collected sayings of people that count six things. In this case, this hadith again is that six things are strangers in six situations. By here, stranger means that they're underappreciated, they're foreigners, they're uh, underutilized, undervalued. So the first of this was the masjid is a stranger amongst people who do not pray. And we can understand this to have many meanings. Uh, on the one hand, you could take it at its literal meaning, that if there's a masjid in a neighborhood or a masjid in a village or a masjid in a city and all the people who don't pray from that neighborhood or from that village in that masjid have allowed the masjid to become a stranger to them. In other words, they've undervalued or underappreciated or failed to do qadr of that masjid. And obviously, I mean, if we look at our own campus, uh, for some members of this university, the masjid has become a stranger amongst them. A place where they never go, a place where they have never set foot, a place where they have become so distant from that even when the adhan is called out, they successfully are able to block their ears uh, from this reminder, from this call to prayer, from this call to falah, this call to success and happiness, from adhan on the hukam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We can look, we can understand the hadith in a more broader way. Right, and that is is that the masjid is a stranger amongst people who do not pray. Uh, we can take this in a qualitative level. That is, the masjid is a stranger for even those people who might go inside and physically pray in it. But the quality of their prayer, in other words, they pray in an absent-minded and a ghafil in a heedless way. And in that sense, in the barakat of the masjid, the blessings of praying in the masjid, they're oblivious to that. In other words, they enter the physical structure of the masjid for their prayer. 
However, other than being in that physical structure, the quality of their prayer is not sufficient for them to feel the barakat or the blessings or to derive the extra sakoon or itminan that is obtained from praying our salah in the masjid. So the notion then, and if you look at all of these six things, all of the six things are things that Allah SWT values highly. And it's part of His divine decree that if we don't value the things that He values in this world, then Allah SWT will make those things straight like strangers to us. In other words, if we turn ourselves away from the masjid, then Allah SWT will over time, after a certain period in which Allah SWT might give us reminders, opportunities to repent and change our way, over time then Allah SWT will make that masjid a stranger to us. And then that estrangement, that process of estrangement will continue and continue. The second of the six things is the Qur'an al-Kareem is a stranger in a household where it is not read. And that again is something, in fact, even more prevalent perhaps than the first, is that many of us have many, multiple mushaf or copies of the Qur'an al-Kareem in our home. But, and the Qur'an al-Kareem is something that Allah SWT has valued extremely highly. But if we don't read that copy of the Qur'an, then the Qur'an al-Kareem gradually becomes a stranger. It becomes a foreigner. It becomes distant, we become distant from it, and then after that, Allah subhanahu wa will make it distant from us. Uh, and this is something that a lot of us have, right? That the Qur'an, although it is physically on our shelf or on the top shelf, we treat it like a stranger. It's almost to the point that we've even forgotten that it is present in our house. So the Qur'an al-Kareem is a stranger in a household where it is not read. Again, we can take this in a second meaning, and the second meaning would be that the Qur'an al-Kareem is a stranger in a household where it might be read, but it is not followed upon, it is not implemented. So there might be a place in which there might be somebody who reads the Qur'an and uh, does tilawah in Arabic, but does not understand the Qur'an, does not do amal on the Qur'an, does not practice the Qur'an, does not implement the Qur'an. So then the barakat of the Qur'an actually becomes a stranger to that person. In other words, the Qur'an al-Kareem has a powerful transformative effect that it can potentially bring to any human being, any family, any community, any society. Uh, but when we don't implement it, when we don't internalize it, when we don't actualize it, when we don't try to live it, then the barakat of the Qur'an, the kuwa, the power, the might of the Qur'an becomes a stranger in our house. Uh, even though it might physically be present and even though we might physically be superficially reading it from time to time. The third of the six things is the memorized Qur'an. The memorized Qur'an is a stranger in the heart of an open sinner. And this is referring to those people who Allah subhanahu wa grace them, not simply with having a physical copy of the Qur'anic text, a mushaf in their house, but having preserved that text in their memory. And this itself is, is quite a powerful metaphor that the way the Prophet ﷺ is phrasing this here is that a person who memorizes the Qur'an, our understanding of that hifz is not that a person has memorized it in their aqal or in their brain. But our understanding of that, the way we will view it is that it's actually something that is m meant to be memorized in the heart. However, the city says that the memorized Qur'an is a strain in the heart of an open sinner. In other words, in the heart of a hafiz who despite not only having read the Qur'an, recited the Qur'an, but despite having even memorized the Qur'an al-Kareem, still commits sin openly. The Arabic word here is fasik. 
A Fasik is a person who commits sin openly, publicly, without any shame, without any remorse, without any regret. So for example, if there's a young man who drinks openly in the dorms, and everybody in the whole dorm knows that he drinks, he does that sin openly, publicly, with no shame, with no haya. So Allah subhanahu tells elevated. Uh, I mean, elevated the enormity of that sin, or if you, in other words, has degraded that person to a further level. In other words, one thing is to sin out of neglect, or to sin out of error, or to sin out of weakness, to fall prey to one's desires, to one's whims, one's weaknesses. But a second thing is to be so bold in that sin to abandon all haya, all modesty, all shame, and openly declare and reveal the the fact that we sin. Obviously then that is a person who does not feel any remorse at all. In other words, there are many Muslims we might commit sin, but we are extremely remorseful and regretful after we commit the sin. Many of us are extremely remorseful while committing the sin. This is a different type of person. This is a type of human being who feels no remorse and regret during, before or after the sin and does it openly. Perhaps even doesn't even view it as a sin or might be so bold enough to say that she doesn't care whether it's a sin. And so such a person has been labeled a fasik. If there is a person of this uh, level of deprivation, who on top of this, on top of being a sinner, on top of being an open sinner, does all of this in spite of being a hafiz of the Qur'an, then such a person, uh, it's as if what the Prophet ﷺ is doing is negating that hafiz is saying that, okay, they've memorized the text of the Qur'an and it was supposed to enter their heart. But if they continue to sin openly, then that memorized text of the Qur'an will become a stranger to their heart, will not enter their heart, and again, the barakat of that will not enter into their heart. The itminan, the sukoon, the quwwat, the iman of the, having the Qur'an memorized will fail to penetrate their heart. And this shows us, uh, this third category also shows us the incredible enormity of sins. That sin is something that can outweigh, overrule and supersede our good deeds. Even if a person does a hafiz, the sins that he does openly or she does openly can outweigh uh, the power of that memorized Qur'an. An example of this that is given by the early Mashaykh is that imagine that sin is like garbage, is like filth, is like najasa, is like an impurity. And the likeness of good deeds is like ether or perfume or fragrance. Now, if a person is standing in a garbage dump, if a person is surrounded by filth and impurity, well due to the incredible stench of that impurity, even if she were to pour a whole bottle of ether on herself, she wouldn't become fragrant. But if she is able to leave that garbage dump, if she is able to leave that place of impurity, then all she would need would be just a few drops of that ether or perfume. Just like that, a person who persists in sin, or even worse, openly commits sin, then they're surrounding themselves with najasa. And when you're surrounded in najasa, even if you pour a whole bottle of perfume on yourself, it's in the likeness of the perfume is good deeds. Even an abundance of good deeds would not be enough to transform us. However, if that person is successfully able to extract themselves from their sin, from their disobedience, from their neglect of obedience, and even a few drops of fragrance, even a few good deeds would be enough to make them pleasing in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The fourth of the six categories is a righteous Muslim woman. 
And you should listen to this carefully because this is the teaching of our Prophet ﷺ. This is what the Sunnah teaches uh, about marital relations and about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala views people who abuse or do not honor of that relationship. So the fourth thing that is a stranger is a righteous Muslim woman, a pious Muslim woman is a stranger in the hands of an oppressive husband, in the hands of an evil husband of bad character. In other words, if it so happens, remember I said that all of these things are things that are extremely valued by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's noteworthy in this hadith that the example of the pious Muslim wife comes before the example of the pious Muslim husband. So just as Allah subhanahu wa honors the masjid, just as Allah subhanahu wa values the Qur'an, just as Allah subhanahu wa values the act of tahfiz al-Qur'an or memorizing the Qur'an, fourthly on that same similar rank and level, Allah subhanahu wa honors and values deeply a pious, righteous Muslim woman. And if her spouse, her husband, does not do qadr of her, does not value her, is oppressive, has bad character, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes that woman like a stranger to him. In other words, he has undervalued her, he has underappreciated her. So Allah, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make her a stranger in the sense that he will not benefit. She was an incredible gift, an incredible blessing, an incredible ni'mah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who if he had treated her properly would have been a source of great comfort and solace and itminan and sukun in his life. But because he chose instead of honoring her to be oppressive and to be a bad character, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the barakah of that woman as a stranger to him. Similarly, exactly the same words are used uh, in the converse sense that a pious or righteous Muslim man is a stranger in the hands of an evil wife of bad character. So similarly for a woman to have a pious, righteous husband is also something that Allah, for a man to be a pious and righteous husband is something that Allah subhanahu wa values deeply. And if a woman had honored that uh, and sought to benefit from that, then he also would have been a source of taqwiyat al-iman, of strengthening the faith, of support on the deen, of comfort in this, the next life and as well as in this world. But instead, she chose to be oppressive or evil or have bad character. She chose not to benefit from her husband. And therefore then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make the barakat of having such a person as a spouse a stranger to her. So the six things again that we've mentioned so far. Number one, the masjid is a stranger amongst people who do not pray. Number two, the Qur'an is a stranger in a household where it is not read. Number three, the memorized Qur'an is a stranger in the heart of an open sinner. Number four, a righteous, pious Muslim woman is a stranger in the hands of an oppressive, evil husband of bad character. Number five, a righteous, pious Muslim man is a stranger in the hands of an evil wife uh, of bad character. And number six, and a scholar is a stranger amongst a group of people who do not listen to him. What this means then is as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I mean it is the sixth thing, but as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors the masjid, the Qur'an, the memorization of the Qur'an, a pious Muslim wife and a pious Muslim husband, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also has honor and value for his ulama. In fact, in the Qur'an al-Kareem, he has mentioned, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ ulama That verily those amongst the ibad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, amongst Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's servants, yaksha, the most fearful of human beings from amongst his servants, Al-ulama are the ulama, are the people of knowledge, the people of learning, the people of scholarship. 
However, many times there will be a scholar in a community and that community does not listen to him or does not respect him or does not honor him. And so just like uh, as we had in the previous examples, this person had a potential, a male scholar or a female scholar, he or she had the potential to be a source of guidance and inspiration for those people. But because those people chose instead to spurn him or even wish to scorn him, then they would fail to get the, the barakah, they would not realize the potential that Allah SWT put in their presence. And this is really, you have two phenomena really in the, in the contemporary Muslim world. And number one is that, and that's another hadith that we might do sometime, is that Allah, the Prophet said that when Allah SWT wishes to remove knowledge from this world, He will do so by removing the people of knowledge, He will do so by lifting up one of His ulama up one by one, and there will not be someone to fill their shoes, to fill their place. So we have that in the Muslim world, that there's a dearth, there's a scarcity of, of, of pious and rightly guided scholars. But perhaps what is even more tragic is even the few that exist, uh, there's an incredible lack of qadr or lack of uh, value or appreciation of those people in this world, such that even if they exist in our country, in our city, there are unfortunately very few people left who take benefit from them. Certainly, obviously that person who is unable to take benefit from the masjid, is unable to take benefit from the Qur'an, who is in their own house, is unable to draw benefit from a pious spouse, whom Allah Taala has given them, then obviously such a person would be far from uh, even intending to uh, benefit from a scholar who might be in their community or in their area. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, Verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not look at them on the Day of Judgment in a merciful manner. And that is a much stronger, uh, a much stronger prohibition or a much stronger warning uh, then perhaps these words can convey because it's something that me and you might not realize or appreciate right now sitting in this world but on that day of judgment there is nothing uh, except for that mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in other words on that incredibly awe-inspiring that incredibly awesome and powerful day of Yom Al-Qiyamah there will be nothing at all that can bring any benefit, any sukoon, any lightness to us except the mercy and the rahmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. For such a person to be mahroom, of Allah, for such a person to become uh, bereft, deprived of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy on that day, that is an ultimate form of failure. And this again shows how much Allah SWT dislikes people who do not honor these six things. And rather even you can extrapolate that it shows how much Allah SWT does not like people who don't honor the blessings or the ni'mas or the bounties that He has given them. So much so that if we are disrespectful to these blessings, Allah SWT Himself will choose not to look at us on the Day of Judgment in a state of mercy. Another saying that uh, Imam Ibn Hajar al-Sakalana mentions in this chapter is a saying attributed to Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu. Sayyidina Uthman radiallahu anhu said that the believer is in six types of fear. The believer is in six types of fear. The first is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take away his iman. The second is that the angels will write down things that will expose him on the day of judgment. The third is that shaitan will render his actions void. The fourth is that the angel of death will take his soul when he is in a state of heedlessness. 
The fifth is that the dunya will delude him and make him work for others in the akhirah. And the sixth is that his family and children will preoccupy him to such an extent that he neglects the remembrance of Allah the Exalted. So the first, what Sayyidina Uthman Radhanallah mentioned is that the believer is in six types of fear. Now, those are six things that a believer should fear. Uh, and, and it's quite interesting because Sayyidina Uthman believed, uh, or it was his perception, that every believer would have these six types of fear. And, you know, we can really just reflect upon our own reality that how many of us actually have these six types of fear and how intense is our emotion or would we even be willing to call that emotion fear, right? So the first is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take away his iman. In other words, that it's a sign of a true believer that he, he or she is always worried, is unsure uh, whether she will die or pass away from this world in the state of Iman. Now what does that mean? That doesn't mean that Allah SWT will randomly take it away. It doesn't mean that in any way we should have a weak intention on our Iman. No. As far as our intention goes, it should be absolutely firm that we are in a state of Iman and we intend to leave this world in a state of Iman. However, what we fear is that there might be something that we might do something we might hear, something we might think, something we might say, something we might feel, or, or some environment that we might be in, that might jeopardize our iman, right? And that is the fear that obviously anybody fears the loss of their most precious thing, right? Uh, and the most precious thing that a believer has is his or her iman. The second thing is that the believer will fear is that the angels will write down things that will expose him or her on the day of judgment. Right? In other words, this is also kind of a, a metaphorical way of stating that a person fear, fears that certain actions, that we will do certain actions or say certain things that will be preserved in our book of deeds and that then will expose our hypocrisy, expose our reality, expose our inadequacy on the day of judgment. And that is a perpetual fear that a person should have. And the way, I mean, this fear then should motivate us to be extremely careful uh, and scrupulous and scrutinous about the type of things that we do and say. The third is that shaitan will render their actions void. right? And that is also fear that we should have. Is it okay if I'm able to maintain my iman and I'm able to maintain my a'mal or my actions? Then what I have to worry about is that shaitan might nullify my actions perhaps by whispering a desire to do sin, perhaps whispering a suggestion of my greatness that would lead me to pride, perhaps whispering an alternative benefit to the things that I do and that would then take away my ikhlas or my sincerity and purity of purpose and action. And this is, you know, it's quite an interesting thing, this third thing, for a lot of us, our belief in what we call the imaniyat, the things that are the articles of belief, and especially our belief in those articles that are entirely unseen, for many of us our belief in these things are very weak, right? Uh, and many times we've talked about the belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but actually, I mean, something also worth considering is our belief in shaitan. In other words, by hearing iman belief, I don't mean our love or admiration or anything. What I'm saying is, to what extent do we really believe that shaitan exists? 
In other words, one thing is to have an abstract theological belief that yes, there is something or some type of being or some type of entity whose name is Iblis, whose name is Shaitan, he is a regime, I believe all the things that I've read about him in the Quran. But when you keep that to an abstract level, what do I mean by that? But what I mean by that is that if you have an abstract theological belief, means that something we, at a very loose, general, vague level, believe to be true, but that belief has not in any way affected our outer self, it hasn't changed our outer behavior, it hasn't brought us more to obedience or saved us from disobedience, nor does it affect our inner self in any way, it hasn't changed any of our inner states of the heart, our spiritual states of the heart. And for most of us, this is probably true in terms of our belief of shaitan. In other words, how many people can say that we actually have this, we actually are so conscious of him, that we deep down from our heart view him as an aduwa mubin, as a clear and manifest enemy, the way Allah subhanahu wa mentioned him to be. How many of us have this enmity towards shaitan? How many of us are on guard against shaitan? How many of us, it's too abstract a concept for us, right? Most Muslims, you know, almost never even think about shaitan. Which in a way is a good thing. I'm not <laughs> in any way telling, uh, you know, that we should sit down and be doing zikr of shaitan. But the point is, is that what's being mentioned by Sayyidina Uthman anhu is that a person is always on guard against her enemy, right? Just like a person is always worried or preoccupied or has a fear that their more precious thing might be lost. At the same time, they're always on guard at their most significant threat, at their most dangerous threat. They're always wary of their most dangerous enemy. And what does that mean, right? What does that mean practically speaking? If somebody said, okay, I want to internalize this. I don't want it to be just an abstract belief. What, what exactly, what type of emotional consciousness am I supposed to have? What does it mean to be wary of shaitan, right? Uh, and, I mean, it's not mentioned in this saying, but the second enemy that we have, right, is our nafs. And then, and that's the second thing, right, that a lot of us are, sort of, how many of us are actively, consciously, trying to guard ourselves against our nafs. So, what exactly are shaitan and the nafs? Now, shaitan is a real live being, right? We cannot see him. We cannot hear him, and we don't really interact with him in a way that we can, mm, that we're aware of, in a way that we can ascertain. What exactly is the power that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, or the ability that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given Shaitan? Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given Shaitan an ability, which, when I'm going to say it, is going to seem very light. He's given him the ability to distract. He's given Shaitan the ability to distract us. He's given shaitan the ability to whisper, uh, a suggestive whisper into us. And again, this is not a whisper, the kind of whispering one might do in another person's ear. This is kind of meant that he plant a suggestion or plant a thought or plant an insinuation, right? So they're very, very light things, plant an insinuation or distract us in some way. This is the ability that, by and large, I mean, I'm making it slightly generalizing or simplifying matters. This is the ability Allah SWT has given shaitan. Okay, now that we understand that, how exactly are we supposed to be on guard against this? 
when we do not really listen to that insinuation, we don't really hear that whispering, we don't really feel or notice that suggestion. One way is, that, I mean, if a person wants to try to do that, is one way is that if you, sometimes if you randomly feel, if you're sitting down and you randomly feel like doing a sin, or you randomly, all of a sudden, randomly, by random, I mean out of the blue, without any apparent cause, without any apparent reason, either you think of doing a sin, you remember a past sin, you start daydreaming about a sinful activity, you start longing for something that might be sinful or displeasing or distracting. Anything like that, anything that seems to come of a sudden, that is not prompted by anything apparent, right? It's possible that that might have been a suggestion that came from shaitan. And so when things like that happen, then immediately a person should turn and seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A'udhu billahi min rajim And a person should in their heart be repentant to Allah. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I ask your forgiveness for being so weak and at this moment being so ghafil of you, being so heedless of you, that I fell prey to the whisperings or the insinuations or the thoughts of shaitan. Because the thing that really is our weapon then, the thing that guards us against us is dhikr. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in the Qur'an that the first thing shaitan distracts the believers from is their dhikr, is their remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As long as we have our connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as long as we are in a state of remembrance, then that dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like a shield. It's like a barrier through which shaitan cannot penetrate. However, because most of us are not practicing dhikr, most of us are not in a state of dhikr, so we're like sitting ducks. We're sitting targets for shaitan's insinuations and whisperings when we shed our armor of dhikr. And so then the next way then is to, to, to guard ourselves against shaitan is to increase in our level of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to increase in our dhikr, the more and more we are a remembrance of him, the more and more we will be guarding ourselves against shaitan. Truly that person who is a that person who is striving to be a true believer, the way Sayyidina Uthman Badanu mentioned and fears it uh, has a fear of shaitan spoiling or rendering their actions void, that person then will manifest that fear or that person will try to stave off that fear by increasing in her level of the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The nafs. The nafs is also something that you cannot see, that you cannot feel, that you cannot experience. When quote-unquote your nafs prompts you to do something, you're not necessarily aware of that. Right? How many of us can say, okay, yes, that was my nafs. What is the sign that it's your nafs that's prompting you to do something as opposed to shaitan? The sign that your nafs is prompting you to do something is that the Mashaikh have stated that the nafs is like a small child. In other words, the nafs has zid. The nafs has stubbornness. It's obstinate. If you feel that you're being attracted to some type of displeasure and you can't get your mind off of it, you over and over keep thinking about that sin or keep having that sinful thought and you just cannot get your mind off of it, that is your nafs. Right? That is the sign that it is our nafs. Shaitan will try to trap us in one sin. If we don't fall on that, he'll present a different sin. If we don't fall on that, he'll present a third sin. If we don't fall on that, he'll try to present some type of distraction. If we don't fall on that, at least he'll try to take us away from good deeds.
So he'll keep changing his, his tactics. The nafs will pick one thing and will just stick to it. So if we find a bad thought coming and we're able to successfully repel it, five, ten minutes later, the exact same thought comes. Or we have a pattern that some, if somebody feels, you know, from time to time, I always have the same recurring thought. I always have the same recurring lapse. I have the same recurring indulgence. I have the same recurring sin. Then those things that are recurring, those things that are persistent, those are the things that are coming from our nafs. How does a person then guard ourselves against the nafs? The way to guard ourselves against the nafs is, is, is called mujahada. It's called by making effort. Uh, by making effort, striving in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, striving in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, striving in ibadah. And from time to time, uh, and this is obviously a nafil act, but from time to time, the Mashaikh said, depending on the type of sin, or the, the type of lustful desire that the nafs is creating, we should try to discipline the nafs. Right? For example, Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, has written a whole book on that, called Undisciplining the Soul. And breaking the two desires of Akasra Shahwatin. And so there's this notion here that if we feel that the nafs has become too strong, in the Quran Kareem this is called a nafsul ammara, the commanding nafs, the nafs that does amr, it does hukam, it commands us what to do. Then we have to make effort to try to, to mm, battle that nafs. Uh, and sometimes people do this through voluntarily fasting, sometimes people will do it through, you know, randomly. Uh, imposing restrictions uh, on oneself. For example, if we feel that, you know, I have this problem that I don't pray Isha on time. And sometimes I wait until very late night to pray Isha. And sometimes I find and then my nafs takes over because I feel so sleepy uh, that my, the laziness of my nafs kicks in and I go to sleep without having prayed Isha. So then one way that a person would do mujahid on one's nafs in the particular case would say, okay, I'm not going to take my night meal, I'm not going to eat dinner until I prayed. Now, technically speaking, in the sharia, it's 100% jais and permissible to eat before you've prayed your isha salah, right? But this is what the mashayikh mean by mujahid of the nafs, to add something extra, right, in order to tame the nafs. So we find that our nafs is so lazy that we continually keep postponing Isha and that occasionally leads us to sleep without having even prayed and then we don't get up, right? And we actually make a of that prayer. Then we should tame our nafs by doing something like this. That I won't, whatever, I won't eat until I pray Isha, I won't lie down until I pray Isha, I won't do X until I pray Isha. So this is the way uh, the Mashaikh is said to guard against the nafs. So the first thing, the believers in the six types of fear, the first is that uh, they will lose their iman. The second is that they, they will do certain actions that the angels will write down and they will be exposed thus on the Day of Judgment. The third is that sh they will fall prey to shaitan. The fourth, the fourth is that the angel of death will take their soul when they are in a state of heedlessness, they are in a state of ghafla. And this is really, I mean, you know, Sayyidina Uthman, this was the level of the Sahaba, that they were so worried about the way they would die. They wanted to make sure that they died again in a state of dhikr, in a state of remembrance, when they were remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They did not want death to overcome them in a state of ghafla. And that's something, you know, that very few of us even think about these days, right? The reality is, is that none of us know in what state we're going to pass away from this world. Death is the universal that every single human being agrees upon. Nobody, no, every human being agrees that that humans will die. 
Every human being agrees that nobody knows when they will die, how they will die. None of us know whether the moment that death overcomes us, it will be a moment in which we are in a state of the remembrance of Allah. We will exit this world thinking of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Or will we exit this world in a state of total absent-mindedness? None of us even know if there will be anybody behind us when we die who will even bother to purchase a coffin for us, who will even bother uh, from our near ones or loved ones to bathe us, to do ghusl of the mayyit, who will even lower us into the grave, who will pray our janazah. These are all unknown. None of us know who's going to put the kafan on us, who will bathe us, who will pray over us, who will bury us. And so this is something the Sahabi used to think about. They used to want, they wanted to die in the best of ways. Right? And we are people who are concerned with living in the best of ways. The fifth thing that Sayyidina Muhammad mentions is that the fifth fear that a believer has is that the dunya, this world, the material world, materialism, will delude him or her and make him work for something other than the akhirah. Right Now this is not, again, saying that we're not supposed to work for the dunya at all. The fear here is that the dunya would preoccupy us to such an extent that we would work for ghair, other, we would stop working for the akhirah, we would stop thinking or preparing for the akhirah. Uh, and that is a fear that a believer should have. And that's a fear that we have because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has actually required us to try to maintain or preserve our iman in this dunya. It would have been much easier if there was monasticism in Islam. It would have been much easier if we just lived in masajid or madrasas or khankas or sanctuaries or monasteries or convents or something like that. But because Allah SWT has put this burden on us, or this responsibility on us that no, that we have to maintain our iman and being intact while living in this dunya. But then that believer then is going to have this fear, this worry that fine, I'm living in this dunya, but what happens if this dunya distracts me so much? My pursuit of this dunya distracts me from my ultimate goal, my ultimate objective, which is attaining a blissful akhirah. And the sixth thing that Sayyidina Uthman will mention is that a person, a true believer will have a fear that his or her family and children will preoccupy him to such an extent that they neglect the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is again something that shows what how the believers understood the relative balance of things. And we can participate in the dunya. But once it starts distracting us from the akhirah, that's a problem. We can obviously love and be engaged in our family and children. But if that makes us neglect the worship of Allah, neglect the obedience of Allah, neglect the remembrance of Allah, then it's been taken to an extent that is too far. So the common thing that we notice then is that the ultimate hakim or the ultimate judge or criteria for all of their actions was does this action distract me from my real purpose on earth? Is this action distracting me, making me forget, making me heedless of my real objective, my true beloved, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give all of us the ability to honor not just the six things that the Prophet ﷺ mentioned. May first and foremost Allah subhanahu wa bestow us with all of these things, bestow us with the ability to do qadr of the masjid, to do qadr of the Qur'an in our homes, to do qadr of a pious spouse, to do qadr of the ulama and the awliya in our age. May Allah subhanahu wa enable us as well to have and to, to do qadr of all of the blessings, each and every blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us, so that we are not mahroom or bereft or deprived or become stranger to any of their ben- the benefits and blessings that we have been bestowed upon. 
And may Allah SWT enable us to have all of the types of fear that Sayyidina Uthman mentioned and to have all of the types of fear that he, Allah SWT himself, desires in the heart of each and every one of his believers. وَآخِرَ الدَّعْوَانَ أَنَ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ سُبْحَانَ رَبِّنَا وَرَحَابَ اللَّهِ مَسَنِّيَ نَاسُرْنَا مَحْمَدُ وَعَلَىٰ آلِ سِيْنَا مَحْمَدٍ وَبَارِكُ وَسَنَّمْ ربنا ظلمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكوننا من الخاسرين ربنا يا الله يا رب الكريم ظلمنا أنفسنا يا الله we have wronged ourselves we have oppressed ourselves Ya Allah, we have not done qadr of the ni'mas, we have not valued and esteemed and honored all of the bounties and blessings that you have given us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, if you do not shower your rahman, your mercy upon us, if you do not shower your maghfri, your forgiveness upon us, lanakunanna min al-khasrain, verily Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we will have earned for ourselves the khusr, we will have earned for ourselves absolute and utter loss and deprivation. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to save us from the loss of our actions. Save us from the deprivation of our deeds. Save us from the deprivation of our emotions. Ya Allah, save us from the deprivation of our thoughts. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to do qadr of the masajid, to do qadr of all of the places upon which you have showered your rahmah and your blessings, to do qadr on all of the Baytullahs, to do qadr on all of the places of learning, on all the, to do qadr of all of the places of worship, to do qadr of all of the places of remembrance. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to do qadr of the Qur'an al-Kareem. Ya Allah, enable us to read and recite the Qur'an al-Kareem. Ya Allah, let us enable us to do qadr of the alfaz of the Qur'an. Enable us to do qadr of the ma'ani of the Qur'an. Enable us to do qadr of the ma'arif of the Qur'an. Enable us to do qadr of the ahkam of the Qur'an. Enable us to do qadr of the adab of the Qur'an. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, increase us in our ilm of the Qur'an. Grant us the ability to do amal on that ilm. And grant us the purest form of ikhlas on that amal and on that ilm. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, enable us, Ya Allah, to do qadr of the people around us. Enable us to do qadr of the pious father. Enable us to do qadr of the pious mother. Enable us to do qadr of the pious husband. Enable us to do qadr of the pious wife. Ya Rabbi Kareem, enable us to do qadr of the pious brother. Enable us to do qadr of the pious sister. Enable us to do qadr of the pious son and enable us to do qadr of the pious daughter. Ya Rabbi Kareem, enable us to do qadr of the pious friend, to do qadr of the pious well-wisher, to do qadr of the pious student. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in our ability. Ya Allah, to benefit from the bounties that you have given us. Ya Allah, those of us who are married, Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in our ability to bring out the good in our spouses and to be a means of ourselves uh, providing the good for our spouses. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to transform us and grant us the noblest, highest forms of character, the character of your Nabi Kareem, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and the character of his Ummahatum, of the Ummahatum Mu'mineen. Ya Allah, enable us to have a mutual and loving relationship with one another, as embodied by Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and Amma Aishad, radiallahu anha. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, those of us who are not yet married, Ya Allah, we ask you out of your fuzzle, out of your grace, out of your karam, out of your generosity, out of your rahmah and out of your mercy to decree for us a spouse that is most pleasing to you. A spouse that will enable us to earn your pleasure in the akhirah as well as to enable us to be pleased in this dunya. Ya Rabbi Kareem, a spouse that will support us in our deen. Ya Allah, a support and a spouse that will be good for us in our dunya. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to enable us to fulfill the honors of our spouses once we have them. 
Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you to enable us to gather of the ulama and awliya as you yourself have defined these terms in the Qur'an al-Kareem. Ya Allah, help us to benefit from them, help us to learn from their knowledge, help us to learn from the knowledge and legacy both of them, both of those thousands who have passed away from this world. Help us to enable from their books and from their students and from their teachings and help us to benefit from those who remain alive amongst us today. Ya Allah, do not let any of our blessings and bounties become a stranger to us. Ya Allah, forgive us for our lack of qadr. Ya Rabbi Kareem, you said in the Quran, Ma ma qadri. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we fear. Ya Allah, that in this day and age we have become the mistaq of that ayah, that we have become the manifestation of that verse, that we are those people whom you must have intended when you revealed that verse upon the Bayyukari. Ya Allah, we ask your forgiveness. Ya Allah, we ask you first and foremost to enable us to do qadr of you, to value you as you deserve to be valued, to love you as you deserve to be loved, to fear you as you deserve to be feared, to know you as you have revealed yourself in the Quran and Sunnah. Ya Allah, to value your hukam, to respect your azmat, to respect your jalal, to yearn for your raham, to yearn for your karam, and to yearn for your jamal. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you... Allah to enable us to do qadr of Rasulullah sallam. Let us each and every one us view him from the depth of our heart as the rahmatullah al-alameen. Let each and every one of us see the beauty of the uswat al-hasana that you placed in this world. Ya Rabbi Kareem, help us to follow in his sunnah, follow in his legacy. Ya Rabbi Kareem, help us in some way to give light, to give honor to the sacrifice that he made for his ummah. Help us in some way to be worthy of the du'as that he made for his ummah at the time of the hajjad. Ya Allah, help us in some way to be raised on the Day of Judgment amongst his sons and daughters you know, amongst and to have a space in the ranks of the Sahaba and the Sahabiyat. Help us in some way to not be a disgrace to our mothers, the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, no son or daughter wishes to be exposed in front of her mother. Ya Rabbi Kareem, do not expose our sins in front of Amma Aisha and Amma Khadija on the Day of Judgment. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, enables to follow their models of modesty, their models of chastity. Ya Allah, let us emulate them in their outer form and in their inner reality. Ya Allah, grant us the states of taqwa and iman that the Ummahat al-Mu'mineen had. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, and enable us to have a fear for you. Ya Allah, enable us to have a heart that fears you, a heart that fears you more than anything else in the world. Let all of our fears be based on the fear for you, and let nothing else be fearful to us. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask you for a heart that is fearful. Ya Allah, a heart that is fearful. Ya Allah, a heart that is fearful of you. Ya Allah, we ask you for that khashiyat and that khawf, as you have mentioned it in the Qur'an al-Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask you to have a value for our iman. We ask you to enable us to preserve our iman. Ya Allah, we ask you for the tawfiq, the grace and success, to pass away from this world in a state of iman. Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to enable us to have to pass away from this world in a state of remembrance. Ya Allah, let death not overcome us except that we have earned your pleasure. Ya Allah, let death not overcome us except that we have succeeded in repenting of our sins. Ya Allah, let death not overcome us except in a state that we are thinking of you and we are remembering you. Ya Allah, save us from a ghafil mawt. Ya Allah, save us from a ghafil life. Ya Allah, save us from each and every moment that is absent and devoid of your remembrance and worship. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Allah, we ask you, Ya Allah, to save us. We ask you to save us from the whisperings and insinuations of shaitan. Ya Allah, let us be more ever vigilant towards these things. Ya Allah, protect us and enable us to 
earn and garner the shield of your remembrance. Ya Allah, increase us in our dhikr so that we may be further guarded against the wiles and the whisperings of shaitan. And Ya Allah, save us from the laziness and, 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 the, and the obstinateness of our nafs. Ya Rabbi Kareem, enable us to do mujahada on our nafs. Ya Allah, let each and every one change our nafs al-amara into the nafs al-mutmainna so that we too can meet you on the day of judgment in such a state that you are pleased with us and that we are pleased with you. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to grant us all of this levels of fear, all of the levels of love, all of the ahwal and the sifat that you've mentioned for the mu'mineen in the Qur'an al-Kareem. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask you to do, enable us to do qadr of our time. Let us value the time that we have. Let us value the free time that we have. Let us spend our one or two week quarter break in a way that is most befitting to your honor and majesty, in a way that will enable us to earn your pleasure. Ya Allah, let us compensate for our deficiencies that we, that we had during the term. Ya Allah, let us compensate for our neglect of worship that we had during the term. Ya Allah, we ask you to increase us in our ilm, and increase us in our ibadah, and increase us in our dua in these two weeks that we have off. Ya Nabi Kareem, Ya Allah, grant us success in the exams of this world, and grant us success in the ultimate exam on the Day of Judgment. Ya Nabi Kareem, those of us who are sick, who have near ones and relatives who are sick, grant them the sihatikam and the ajala mustamilla, grant them the most complete, perfect, and lasting type of health. Those of us who are needy or have family members who are needy, grant them the rizki halal, the tayyib, the purest and noblest forms of wealth. Rabbana takambal minna innaka anta al-samiyul alim wa tubulayna innaka anta al-tawab al-rahim wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi sayyidna Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin